Well, hello for the third time. <laughs> no echo. See, I'm, so I didn't do anything else on my end. So it's yeah. got to be. Yeah, whatever the hell they're doing with all these updates, I have no idea. But anyway. All right, let's do it. So you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Sophia Loren on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So good evening and welcome to, I believe, the third episode of the 13th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maiden of sleaze, virago of vituperiness, and all-around fun guy, <laughs> as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Should I call you the love guru, too? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello. Sophia Costanza Brigida Villani Schicciolioni, that's a mouthful, huh? Was born all the way back in the heyday of Mussolini, Rome, 1934, to an engineer-turned-railway worker who may or may not have been descended from a Viscount, and a piano teacher slash local actress who he never married, hence leaving Lorraine and her mother in poverty. While she only saw the guy a few times in her life, and understandably never forgave him for this, she actually paid him to acknowledge her fellow bastard sister as his own, so that she could take the family name. Don't ask me, it's not like either of the daughters got anything out of this, but there you go. Swell guy. Her big break came when she finalized in a few beauty contests at age 16, under the fake name of Sophia Lazaro. This brought her to the attention of film producers, one of whom was her future hubby, Carlo Ponti, who changed her name and got her signed with Paramount for a string of big-budget but, frankly, quite maudlin and terrible films that, alongside the depressing shitfest Two Women, for which, quite unbelievably, she won an Oscar, brought her name to prominence internationally. In the era where blowsy blondes like Monroe, Mansfield, and Van Doren were all the rage, Lorraine became one of the first and biggest of the far more naturalistic and earthy European competition, without question only surpassed by the even more existentially authentic Brigitte Bardot, who we quite deservedly devoted an entire show to. Popular and prolific throughout the 60s, she made a huge sensation with a handful of films she'd done with Vittorio De Sica, often in conjunction with male sex symbol of the era Marcello Mastriani, before marrying Ponti despite his being more than twice her age, having two kids, and slowing down dramatically in the 70s. So, is there anything you want to say about her before I start going through these? Well, uh, what was interesting is that I, I actually thought she had more credits than she actually does. Yeah, she I remember did. you were like, I don't want to do this, she got so many credits. I'm like, well, not really. <laughs> yeah, no, you were right, you were right. As you mentioned, you know, she was she was eye candy. She's a lot in the in the background, sometimes uh, as Sophia Lazaro or Sophia Skiclione. She, she might have speaking parts, therefore that's why she's credited. Uh, sometimes she's not even credited, but there's somehow like Two Nights with Cleopatra, which kind of got lumped in with the peplums. She's in that, apparently. <laughs> it's the same thing that happened with Brigitte Bardot. Some of her really early stuff, she's barely in it. She might have a walk on, like Doctor at Sea, for example, and that was one of the bigger ones. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of happened in those days. Yeah, it wasn't toward the very late. 
What year is Two Women? Oh, Two Women was like 1960. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't until the late 50s that, that her career kind of got started in earnest. Yes. So I'm going to skip all this early stuff that like you mentioned. was walk-ons. She actually started in 1950 with films with the I'm the Capataz as a secretary. And you can find there is a set out there that my local sources had, but uh, whoever had taken it out only or kind of fucked it up and only gave one disc out of this set. But you can find films like Neapolitan Carousel and Attila and stuff like that in there. So I don't know. They're out there, but it, is it, it doesn't really matter. So the first film I think is really worthy of note is 1954's Too Bad She's Bad. It's the second of about a dozen films she made with regular co-star Marcello Mastriani, who she loved working with despite being one of his few co-stars the man didn't have an affair with and apparently habitually never learning his lines. This may actually be my favorite of all her films, believe it or not. A uh-huh. light and very Italian comedy, very much akin to the early Bardot films. Like I mentioned, we've done an entire show on Brigitte Bardot. I love her. Or those Elkie Summer films that she did for Max Picus, uh, Daniela by Night and Sweet Ecstasy, which we had discussed in our French cult cinema show, where a young and very sexy Lorraine beats Sweater Girl Lana Turner all the shit in her form-fitting knit crop. Mm-hmm. The whole film is about frustrated and much put-upon cabbie Mastriani being taken for a ride by a family tradition pickpocket and hustler Lorraine and her no-good knockabout male buddies. They take a ride out to the beach so she can work her wiggle magic and distract him while they steal his cab to sell for parts at the local chop shop. Seriously. Unfortunately for them, he susses out what's going on and spends the rest of the film alternately chasing after them to have him arrested and being hustled by the flirtatious and earthy young sex spot who uses her wiles to keep him off balance and horny throughout which is very understandable if you see this film. Along the way, we discover she's a champion bullshitter, and her father, future three-time Lorraine director Vittorio De Sica, is just raising her in the family tradition, and in between scamming money out of Mastriani and keeping his head spinning in all directions, they pick pockets and pull scams on random passerby on streets, buses, and train stations. In the end, Mastriani finally gets his revenge by marrying her in a very 1950s Italian scene where she actually wants him to put her in her place, and he does. Bang. Big public makeout scene roll credits. If you like Bordeaux films like That Naughty Girl, Mademoiselle Striptease, No Not Now, and don't mind the more lower class, feisty setting and feel of Italian cinema of the period, you should get as big a kick out of this one as I did. And while she later reverts to a less fetching do, for the better part of the film, she's running around with frosted blonde highlights and longer hair, which adds to her being a real knockout here. You can see why Mastriani is so flustered and taken with this woman. Who wouldn't be? And like I said, this is Vittorio De Sica before he was directing, I believe, when he was actually still doing acting parts. So it's one of those, I guess, rare ones for us to see these days. So what's your take? Oh, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite a fun film, actually. It's uh, yeah. I guess these are the kind of pictures they were exporting to uh, maybe American art house theaters, you know, like the early uh, Bardot pictures and the mm-hmm. uh, the ones with Elkie Summer. And those things that Radley Mesker was bringing over. Yeah, the Radley. Yeah, right, right. The, the uh, young Audubon. Catherine Deneuve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Catherine Deneuve. For Audubon films, I think it was. Yes, or, Audubon, yep. And uh, so they, they were, you know, European productions dubbed. There might have been a few that were subtitled, but then I think they, they knew they could make more money dubbed. And, yeah, this is a lot of fun, this one. Yeah, it's, she's painted into this sweater and tight shirt. <laughs> Yeah, yep. Long skirt, though. You know, it's nothing mid 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 length, but she's the wiggle room is. <laughs> and she uh, she has quite the comedy chops too. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a fun film, I thought. 
yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I was surprised. I'd never heard of it, but it was just really good. So she's doing a bunch of more of these films throughout the late 50s. There were nothing much. Until here comes a big one for her. God help us. It was Desire Under the Elms in 1958. We had covered this overrated stinker in our Tony Perkins show. Eugene O'Neill wrote this weird, grubby tale of incest among the miserablest impoverished, which for some insane reason Hollywood decided to commit to celluloid as well. Burl Ives, the friggin' snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and perpetually cheery old folky, plays against type as a miserable old farmer who keeps marrying women. And how? Does he buy them from a white slaver? Does he blackmail their parents? Is he a kidnapper? Who the hell would marry this guy? And literally working them to death. Loren is the latest young bride in a succession of such, and being a fiery Latin sexpot, grabs the attention of one of Ives' two sons, namely an oddly miscast Tony Perkins, who runs around shirtless, showing off his skinny, pale body throughout. TV actor Pernell Roberts, best known as Trapper John M.D., is his other brother who Perkins scams out of his half of the inheritance, Jacob and Esau style, and has to move away while Perkins stays and fucks Loren, knocking her up and convincing dear old dad it was magically his brat. A virgin birth there, I guess. Perkins feels Catholic guilt and mentions he wishes that she'd been on the damn pill. So she kills the kid. He calls the cops on her, then decides it was his fault in the first place and gets himself arrested instead. Yay? Look, my idea of a good Southern Gothic is something like Dear Dead Delilah or Andy Milligan's Seeds. This sort of Flannery O'Connor, Tennessee Williams baby doll bullshit is just fucking grotty, and it forces us to spend at least an hour and a half more than any civilized person ever needs to with the lowest of classes and most degenerate of intellects. Fuck that. I'm a total piece of crap. So, of course, it's much beloved and probably won awards. The usual mirror universe pretzel logic of Hollywood and critics with the heads too far up their own asses to properly consign a sort of downer crap where everyone involved simply sucks to the oblivion it deserves. Well, we just spoke about this at length in the Anthony Perkins show. I don't know what else to say about it other than it's a very strange drama. But it's probably her first really good American film because she did... She did three oddball, unsuccessful pictures in a row. Well, one was Italian-American production, and that was Attila with Anthony Quinn in 55. Anthony Quinn playing uh, Attila the Hun. It it was actually... That's as good as John Wayne playing Genghis Khan in The the Conqueror. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get to that. Not Genghis Khan, but something something else. This was made for 415 million lira, which is 665,000. Surprisingly, as these peplums started uh, getting popular, you know, the Hercules movies, the sons of the mighty sons of Hercules and all those things, <laughs> um, these custom epics kind of got in there, too. And but it was considered not a great film because Quinn is miscast. He's a good actor. Yeah. But he's, he, he's, he was no Attila. And she looks gorgeous, in it, as usual, and, you know, all costumed out, all decked out. Uh, I mentioned... Well, I know we talked about Quinn in our uh, Michael Caine show for the Magus. <laughs> right. That was a good one. Boy and a Dolphin. Alan Ladd, yes. She's paired up with Alan Ladd, and she's wearing a lot of swimsuits. But since this, this was made for a fox, it's a little bit more... Oh, it's got a decent budget. But it, it's a, she, they kind of dress her a little bit more demure. It's you know it's an American romantic film you know set in Greece. I have no idea where they actually shot this. Supposedly it was Lorenz English language debut. So precedes you know Desire Under the Elm, Under the Elms I think, or Around the Elms or wherever the Elm is. Anyway, so they paired her, they paired her up with Alan Ladd, strapping you know popular actor. Short. <laughs> Yeah. Well, because I just remember those stories about how he had to stand on boxes to deal with other actors and stuff. <laughs> A lot of people had to do that. Tom Cruise, I thought. <laughs> 
He's not that short. Yeah, he was here. He's short. Not as bad as on Lad, but... No, he's not that short. Uh, anyway, she plays a, a Greek sponge diver on the island of Hydra. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, she, and she accidentally finds a Greek statue of a boy riding a dolphin. This is all very hyster- historical. And hysterical, because Alan Lance playing an archaeologist. I don't know. <laughs> Clifton Webb from Laura was in this. And I, I just... I could have watched it again, but I didn't want to because it was pretty crappy. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one, we meant, you mentioned John Wayne earlier, and they were paired in Legend of the Lost, where John Wayne is a, a treasure hunter. Yeah, okay. And uh, he's about an expedition <laughs> with Rosado Brazzi, and they meet uh, Lauren, uh, and both men become infatuated with her. It's an unusual kind of picture for John Wayne. It's... It's an event. It's not a Western. It's an adventure film. I think they kept trying to <laughs> pair her up with very popular American actors for her American pictures. Yeah, I thought you were going to go to The Pride and the Passion since I'd heard of that one. That was one of those. Wasn't it a Bible epic? What, the, the Legend of the Lost? No, Pride of the Passion. No, no. That's actually, actually, I, I watched that again. And you didn't see that, right? No, not recently. No, it's a, it's a weird movie. It's Stanley Kramer. And I mentioned Kramer years ago that we, he's an interesting enough director because he's all over the place. <laughs> this is the, probably the only picture you're going to find. Cary Grant, Frank Sinatra, not slumming, and Sophia Loren. And Sinatra's on his A-game in this one. Uh, right about the period, you know, Manchurian Candidate, late 50s, early 60s, where he was really doing stuff. But this was wound up to be one of the weirdest films of all time because... <laughs> It's it's an adventure dramedy. It takes place during the Napoleonic War. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, if I remember, Grant was from the British Navy, and they were trying to, I don't know, next thing you know, Sinatra's cast as a Spaniard. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, Gotta love Hollywood, especially old Hollywood. Uh, well, So do I go on to well, the king? Sinatra, yeah, well, apparently the story goes that he married Ava Gardner, famously, and um, she was all around Europe in these European pictures, including The Sun Also Rises, and she was going to be away on location, including Spain, for a while. So he, he knew what she was like, even though he married her. Mm-hmm. So he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in this international co-production. To keep an and, eye on her. <laughs> Yeah, keep an eye on her, and it, a lot of us shot in Spain. It was, you know, you have a bunch of really popular actors, a still charting singing star, and Cary Grant, and it just bombed famously. <laughs> and unfortunately, whoever designed, I'm looking at the poster now, you have never seen its like, and may never seen its equal. <laughs> This is one of the films that was budgeted for almost $4 million. The box office alone in the U.S. was under $4 million. So it didn't even make back what they spent on it. So uh, what do I think about it? I, it? It was very colorful to watch. It almost looked like a visibly irritated Frank Sinatra. Like, <laughs> A, he, he wasn't comfortable doing this picture. B, he's probably thinking about, where's Ava? <laughs> Who's she with even tonight? <laughs> Yeah, even though he's in a film with Sophia Loren, right? <laughs> Strange one indeed. Yeah. So in 1958, she does something called The Key. 
Carol Reed, who also dumped our Tony Curtis show's trapeze on an unsuspecting public, dumps this steaming unflushable of a wartime melodrama about World War II tugboat captains and the horror they serially fuck. I kid you not, that's the plot. Trevor Howard of Meteor and Sword of the Valiant, both from our Sean Connery show, and dorky, stiff-ass William Holden of our Humphrey Bogart show Sabrina, Dr. Blood himself, Kieran Moore, and Bonds M. Bernard Lee are various tugboat captains with a titular key to morose tramp Lorenz Flat. Apparently, they keep getting their tugs shot down by Nazi U-boats, leaving her key to each other before they die, and she keeps going for whatever random clown happens to waltz in with the lucky key with no say in the matter or any discretion involved. Gives new meaning to the old hooker cry, Hey, sailor! Anyway, other than a nice scene of a demurely naked Loren under a strategically placed bedsheet, flirting with a horny ski-nose Holden in his old man undertrousers for some ungodly reason, this is pretty turgid crap. And the big denouement happens when he goes off on a suicide mission against her wishes, handing off the key to Kieran Moore. Even though he survives his boat sinking, she's already banging someone else and yells at him for passing the key on, and she leaves him on a train while he gets drunk with Moore and swears to find her again. Uh, yeah... I have to ask, who was the audience for these films? <laughs> so what's your take? <laughs> Probably someone that misunderstood her popularity in, in Italy. And someone who, um, someone who, you know, again, they're, they're putting, you know, William Holden was very popular at this time period, you know, and more popular a few years prior to this, but still, he was still very popular. But how do you, they would never make something like this now. How could they even, <laughs> that they even got away with it? Yeah. Uh, so various guys having sex with this woman and she's okay with it. You know, and it's it doesn't matter what the story is that's wrapped the story is wrapped up and apparently it came from a, a nineteen fifty one novel, I guess by a Dutchman and it's probably originally a Dutch novel. I don't know. I didn't investigate further. I did also watch this and I'm like, What? <laughs> um Oscar Helmolka in this too i always enjoy seeing that guy because i don't see him enough in some movies but it does have a strange cast you know rupert davies who showed up in a lot of aip and uh hammer type british horror films brian forbes who was also a director bernard lee you mentioned kieran moore and of course trevor howard it's just another odd picture yeah, and I mean, the thing is, there's a big difference between Loren and Bardot. Not there aren't many that we can discuss, but Bardot would never really be in a picture where she's supposed to be a whore. I mean, you could say, like, I think, what was it, in Casta Malor, the yeah. Louis Malle film? But, you know, still, that was a more serious, dramatic thing. I was like, okay, fine, she was trying to break out, branch out, whatever. I get that. This was just... <sighs> Why would you be in a thing where you're like a cheap-ass whore with no discretion whatsoever? Just anybody that gets handed this key, that's who you're going to be with, you know, fine. And then they pass on to somebody else. It's almost like a bunch of football players passing you around. The, you know, like, what the hell? And worse, it's like, you have guys like William Holden in there. I'm like, he's standing in these, like, uh, old man boxers. And he's just, like, not really in shape or not attractive. Like, why would she possibly want to do these guys? And it's just the whole thing makes no sense whatsoever to me. And I know you're looking at it sort of through modern eyes, but holy shit, even back then it was like, was this the old man director's wish fulfillment? Like, eh, I'm gonna bring some hot heart. Eh, I'm not saying the matter. <laughs> you know, and I know like if you know Italian men, especially back then, they always had this Madonna horror thing going on. You know, something about you know religion and the mother and God knows what the hell else. It's it's crazy. It's hard to even get into psychologically. But you know. Why? It's just, I just gotta ask. Why would you star in this thing? And who the fuck wrote this thing? I'm like, ah. Again, I just don't understand the audience for these kind of films. So that's all I'm gonna say about it. So she does something called the Black Orchid. I don't know. Here's another winner. 1958, same year. Houseboat. 
Yes, did you see that? Yes, I did. It's so, you know, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Cary Grant was so... Oh, he was so popular at the time. and you know, He was so charming in his own kind of... Charming and very suave. Now I got nothing bad to say about him. He, was, uh... he comes off very fake because that wasn't who he was. You know, he always right, made... Yeah, that was the thing. Yeah. You know, he always made that thing about like, old Archie Leach and he throw jokes about that in there all the time because, you know, he was a cockney and here he is trying to be all suave. So it's very put upon. It's like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. But he's still a likable guy. He very knows what likeable. he's doing. You know that he's in on the joke. It's, it's you know, I have no, nothing bad to say about no, no. I actually love him in Hitchcock films. Yes, yes, nothing bad either. But oddly enough, just actually, sometimes I let cute movies enter into my system. And I actually enjoyed watching this. It was really it was stupid fun, but it was... Fun. It's stupid, yeah. <laughs> it's harmless, I guess. So where Brigitte Bardot, as I mentioned recently, was desexualized and made palatable to fat conservative Midwestern housewives in that abominable Dear Brigitte, where Jimmy Stewart can only get through to his brat Billy Moomy from Lost in Space by getting her to meet with the understandably obsessed, if a bit young, fanboy. This piece of foul, steaming Hallmark crap does the same for the even earthier Lorraine. Nepotistically developed from a script by Cary Grant's wife, this flaming bag of poo features a perpetually flustered Grant as a widowed father of three estranged little brats who tries to become a proper father. The kids aren't having it, leading to one running away and winding up in the hands of expat Loren, who's also running away from her folks to, quote, experience America, whatever the hell that means. Naturally, the kids become attached to her. He hires her as a nanny, though she's hopeless and can't cook, clean, or do anything else you'd expect from such an arrangement. Some vaguely Mr. Blandings-esque mishaps later, and if you haven't seen Mr. Blandings builds his dream house, yeah. <laughs> and he's living on a houseboat and married to her. Yay, uptight traditional values? The most notable cast member outside of our mismatched leads is Colonel Clink himself, Werner Klemperer, which should be a flashing neon clue as to the value of this film. Somehow they got a young Sam Cooke to sing the theme song. I guess everybody needs a quick buck to pay the tax bill. Avoid this one like the plague. Lorena is a very pretty and feisty gal, and like Bardot is so natural and genuine in her earlier years, she acts rings around more famed co-stars without even trying. But even those pluses can't polish a wet turd like this. But obviously you're more sentimental, so you enjoyed this. What's your take? Well, I already mentioned what I felt about the picture. And the yeah. thing that was most interesting, well, you know, it's a cute romantic melodrama with a bit of an edge there. It's, you know, it's, here's what I found out. They had previously been in The Pride and the Passion, the picture with Sinatra. Well, Grant's wife, Betsy Drake, I, I don't remember anything about her. She was also an actress. I don't recall. That's what I read. Anyway, yes, he did write the script, and he was powerful enough to have his, whoever Betsy Drake was, star in this picture with him. Well, they, he had an affair, allegedly, okay, mm -hmm. with Lauren on the set of The Pride and the Passion. Yes. He then arranged for Betsy Drake to, like, disappear, <laughs> and Lauren got cast in Houseboat. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, by the time Pride and the Passion had ended, him and Loren's relationship flamed out. Yes. <laughs> but he has to make this picture. <laughs> so I guess credit to the two main stars that they actually finished this movie and she's all smiles and beautiful looking. And he's all like looking like he's falling in love with this woman when, in fact, they had already fall, fallen in and out of love. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it an interesting watch if. You know, like the things behind the scenes, behind the scenes. Yeah. So she does a couple more films. I know I had heard of Heller and Pink Tights. I think I saw it years ago. It was a very, very conservative uh, American film. But 1960, A Breath of Scandal. 
Period piece disaster from Michael Curtiz of our Elvis shows Kid Galahad and our Humphrey Bogart shows Black Legion, which is excellent, by the way. I can't recommend that one enough. And Casablanca. Plus two of my favorite pre-code films, Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum, who clearly was not the same man by this point in his career. Apparently the cast was dismayed to realize on set that the man was well past his prime and recognized while they were making it that they were in a stinker. Lorraine and Cortese did not see eye to eye to the extent where the studio brought her regular collaborator, Victoria the Sika, in for uncredited rework on her scenes. Angela Lansbury of Sweeney Todd, or Elvis Film shows Blue Hawaii, or Frank Sinatra shows The Manchurian Candidate, and our Tony Curtis shows The Mirror Cracked, John Gavin of our Tony Perkins shows Psycho, and our Tony Curtis shows Spartacus, and old pervert Maurice Chevalier, the given for the little girls, who my grandmother referenced as a total hottie in her 80s. All-star in this asinine, over-budgeted, nigh-50s musical dribble, where Sophia's supposed to be a Hungarian princess, yeah, she's just like Zsa Gabor, who finds love when she's mistaken for a commoner by American businessman Gavin. A screwball comedy-style sequence of events leaves her open to scandal back home from age-mismatched, quote, rival Lansbury. Yeah, Angela Lansbury rivaling Sophia Loren? Who wrote this? And the usual happy ending ensues. Even beyond putting a director on this, who should have retired a decade-plus prior, and miscasting the eternally geriatric stage star Lansbury as a peer of the much younger Loren, this is the sort of crap that always baffled me as a kid as to why anyone liked this shit and still makes me vomit when subjected to it to this very day. Like our Bogart show Sabrina or High Society, from our Sinatra show, it's simply unwatchable. Well, okay, Frank was as good as the snarky reporter in what was otherwise a complete shit fest of a Philadelphia story remake, but that aside. And I highly recommend passing on wasting your time on this, but do you have any difference of opinion? How do you feel about this one? Well, I mean, one thing I wanted to say is, like, Lansbury didn't look that bad in, in this, this film, in this time period, you know, and so, I, yeah, I, I, I could see what they were trying to do here, but what she the right person while well, she's playing someone who may be a little older anyway than Sophia. Uh, I could not see it for the show, but I do remember seeing it a long time ago, so I don't want to really comment about the movie because I just don't remember much about it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So hopefully we're getting to the end of the bad ones here because you can see there's a lot of them. Wow, jeez. Uh, here's another one. 1962 Women, which I referenced earlier. Oh, really? Lorraine gets together with frequent director and Too Bad She's Bad co-star Vittoria De Sica, Ralph Vallone of our Tony Perkins shows Phaedra, and Jean-Paul Belmondo from our Jackie Bissett shows Man from Acapulco for this awful, hence Oscar-winning, stinker of a depressing wartime drama. Lorenz's a single mother and store owner who runs off to the country kid in tow to hang out with communist Belmondo, who subsequently gets captured by Nazis. They both get raped by Italian mercenaries, meaning her and the kid. The kid runs off looking for a dead boyfriend, screws the soldier for a pair of silk stockings, something that happened a lot in occupied France, where goods like stockings and chocolates were scarce, apparently. And Mama slaps her for being a whore voluntarily. Roll credits, I'm not kidding you, that's the entire fucking movie. I honestly have no words, particularly when it comes to the fact that this film won awards, and it's still discussed as being some sort of great film, both in Loren's career and in and of itself. What's your take? <laughs> Two women. Why didn't you like it? <laughs> oh my god. First you, off, it's you didn't like it because it was depressing? It's depressing as shit, and you know, just the whole thing, the whole plot of this is, oh, I'm going to run off with a communist, oh, wait, he gets captured with the Nazis, or that's bad enough, it's like Sound of Music kind of shit. But then all of a sudden, okay, they both get raped, and oh, by the way, this girl's going and fucking guys for stockings now, and slap, you're a whore. Really? This is the plot? This is what you want to put across? I just don't get it. This one pissed me off even more than the other one that I told with the key. 
wow, turgid, annoying, offensive to me, and I'm a guy and I'm not a feminist? I mean, come on, get the fuck out of here. And somehow this is a great movie. Well, that's your opinion. I think I, I, th- I respect the film. It's I think it's way above its time. I think it is a great movie. It's shocking. It's shocking. I, in a way, in a way, it carries an impact almost like Last House on the Left. I can see that. I see where you're going with this. Very shocking. Yeah, it's it's very shocking. Y'all are, yes, this stuff actually happens. Yes, so why why shy away from it? They they had big big balls to have the mother and the daughter gang rape. I mean, come on. And she and Sophia Loren was, she got out of her uh, glam, glamour thing role for this picture, you know, to make her earthy. Yes, she won Best Actress. And like every film, best, it's like, how can you, all right, I get it. You don't like this film. It, it just, it seems, it seems to me like it dialed into all the, Bad things. I don't like watching rape either, even if it's depicted in a drama. I mean, it could be anything like lipstick, the very popular picture with one of was it Margot Margo Hemingway? I think it was, yeah. And and uh, even implied in television serials, or even in you're watching a movie and and one of the lead characters, you know, forces himself uh, on 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 somebody. Or even if it's erotic and you're enjoying watching the film, and then they gotta have a scene where, I, now I don't like the picture anymore, you know, because I don't like that personally. Yeah. I don't believe in that. But that being said, this is a very, I believe, a very effective film, and it didn't shy away. I, I mean, it could have been a lot more graphic, but I think they got as graphic as they can get away with. Well, see, I get the whole thing about, okay, this really happened, this fucking Nazis and whatever the hell it was, right. and this was happening out in the woods with the rebels, because I think it was actually the Italian rebels that did it to her. You know, that's not the point. The problem to me, really, was, okay, yeah, this whole thing's depressing, and it sucks, and whatever, I don't need to see this. Especially since rape is never about sex. It's about domination, aggression, revenge. You know, it's like an incel thing. I'm going to prove to you that, you know, I'm the bigger man, or whatever the fuck. It's an act of violence. There's nothing sexy about it. Despite all people's like fantasies, like oh yeah, I want to be dominated or whatever. Okay, that's fine, but no, this is not what we're talking about. This is a terrible thing. It's basically like getting punched in the mouth and getting all your teeth knocked out. But you know, this is for guys versus women, as opposed to just you know two guys. But that's not the problem here. Okay, the problem for me is her attitude towards her daughter. Okay, they're both traumatized by this whole thing. The daughter becomes like a lot of abused and damaged people and says, well, fuck this. If this is the way life's going to be, I'm going to get what I can get out of this. And she goes for it. Okay, she's whoring herself out for stockings, which is kind of like the Japanese co-gals, you know, sleeping with old men in high school so they can buy themselves Gucci bags. What are you doing? You know, really? That's what you're worth? But you get this. Okay, she's damaged. She figures she's cynical. She's doing what she's doing. What does the mother do? Slaps her for being a whore. Really? This is what you're going to put across? I, I don't know. I just, again... I'm no male feminist. I find this fucking offensive, and I'm wondering why anybody would want to sit through this. It just, what are you getting out of this? You know, are you feeling good from this? Are you, are you getting off to this? Does this make you feel, oh wow, this is a great, you know, acting performance? I'm like, what the fuck wants to see this shit? Who wrote this? Who greenlighted it? Well, we agree it? to disagree. So anyway, so uh, next up, she does El Cid, which is another one of those cheesy pepple sort of a thing. Well, yeah, but it was, uh, it was a big picture because it had. Heston. Yes, who we discussed for several films in our uh, 70 sci-fi show. Right, yeah, and and this had a bit of a knucklehead international cast, you know, uh, 
But, you know, I, I never liked this picture. And it's, it was, for, number one, it's too long. And number one is the lead character, I forgot what he was playing, uh, is unlikable. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe this is the film where Heston's uh, dies on his damn horse. It was pretty weird. It was, it was a very, it's not a peplum. It's, it's one of these historical epics historical yeah. epics yeah and bible films i kind of classify them all together so when i say peppa i don't necessarily mean sword and sandal yeah. i just mean that sort of you know you get the idea <laughs> yeah it's just pretty it was pretty bizarre and pretty annoying to watch <laughs> we've got a couple annoying to watch here so far but anyway things get better much better with 1962's boccaccio 70 you know, we covered several of the anthology films that were so popular in Italy back in the 50s and 60s in various shows. We'll name check a few when we cover Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow shortly. But this one, like Spirits of the Dead, I actually love. And unlike even that film, all four of the segments are great. Kicking off with the comparatively unknown Mario Monticelli and his tale of cute pop singer Marisa Salinas getting secretly married to her boyfriend despite neither of them having very much money and having to deal with keeping their marriage quiet on her job because there's some weird rule at the secretarial pool about only hiring single girls, which is made worse by her lecherous dumpy boss trying to show her the town and getting her pants throughout it. And then first living with her crazy large family in a tiny apartment with a neon sign blinking in their window and kids trying to peek in on them all night. Then moving to a dumpy place out in an industrial park area and her apparent ongoing cock tease of the poor schmuck even after <laughs> he's her husband. It is cute though, and so is she, which helps sell the whole frustrated teenage love scenario. Then Federico Fellini drops one of his typical surrealistic and very personal odes to quirkily visage oddballs and sex where an uptight middle-aged anti-sex crusader gets all up in arms about a giant billboard milk ad featuring the hugely memoried Anita Ekberg in the days before she turned into Kirstie Alley. <laughs> Much of it runs like Eight and a Half, Roma, or any of Fellini's other films, where an assortment of circus-like crazies and odd lookers move shit around, shout at each other, and upend the entire town and landscape, leaving the guy feeling utterly tiny and ignored in a mad world. See, Fellini was a lot more existential than you thought, huh? until the guy cracks, and he starts a one-man operation to deface the thing and tear it down, at which point he hallucinates a giant Eckberg laughing at him and seducing him. By the end, he's totally renounced his ways and is now a devoted disciple of Miss Eckberg's charms, but gets hauled off to the nuthouse as his reward. It's cute. It's funny. Eckberg is about the sexiest you'll ever see her here. I can finally see why my father had such a thing for her, which I honestly never understood outside of the sequence. Lucino Visconti drops a vignette about the overage but not wholly unattractive Romy Schneider and her hubby Tomas Milian, who are a rich and apparently famous couple as the paparazzi are all over them when it comes out that he's seeing hookers on the side, and honestly, if he isn't famous, who the hell would care? She gets understandably pissed, but rather than just dumping him and taking him to the cleaners, she actually does something cool. She meets up with some of his whores and learns a few tricks that really get the guy's motor running and kind of blackmails him into paying for it going forward. Or as she puts it, she's getting a new job. It's very Italian, but it worked for me, and it definitely put another big smile on my face. Finally, Sophia shows up as a beehive sporting stunner who, once again, is both earthy and impoverished, this time working as a carny barker, specifically running the shooting gallery. All the horny guys are after her, especially when some dope loses control of a fucking bull who runs amok at the carnival, and she has to take off her red blouse, leaving her showing a rather revealing bustier. Since she and her mother, and I gather her boyfriend, and the mother's boyfriend, are flat-busted, the dope decides to raffle off her favors to make money. Uh, sure. 
Lorenz only interested in a local ascot sporting knockabout with a Vespa, but very reluctantly goes along with this pimping her out, only to talk the Nebuchy winner out of his prize and send him home without, but pretending that he did to stop the locals from mocking him all the time, because she's a nice girl. And she hooks up with her boy toy roll credits. Oh, this is a tie to something else, huh? Like I said at the outset, for all her earthiness, boisterous likability, and stunning looks, Loren was far from the emancipated powerhouse that Bordeaux was. While they're both forces of nature and very true to themselves existentially speaking on screen, Bordeaux was very much her own woman, living life and doing her own thing regardless of whatever this thought, society be damned. Loren was more like the monsters to Bordeaux's Adams family, ultimately far more concerned with fitting in and being, quote, just like everybody else, than doing her own thing and wondering what the fuck was wrong with everybody else for not doing like Bordeaux did. It's similar in a lot of ways, but ultimately far less empowered and ultimately conservative, despite all that Mediterranean peasant fieriness. And it's this, as well as her effective status as pampered eye candy trophy mistress to the rich and powerful movie mogul Carla Ponte, that leaves Loren very much in the dust by comparison. She's a 50s sex in one every respect, albeit a very Southern European one, and far more genuine than the likes of Monroe Mansfield or Van Duren could ever dream of being. But I, all around, I just really enjoy the shit out of this film. It's a very good one. And if you're into these kind of Italian films of the era, I definitely highly recommend it. You will not be disappointed. What's your take? Well, I, I was curious. When I found it subtitled online, I was like, oh, my God, how long is this thing? Because the original Italian language version has all four segments. It was released in the U.S., but one of them missing. Right. Guess which one? The first one. Yes. The one nobody knows the director. By the way, nobody knew the director <laughs> and nobody was familiar. But no, I think it was too long as it was. When it was released, it was two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. It would have been over 210 minutes if they had put it back in. You know, it's Italians are known for these kind of things. He's, uh, they would do this quite often over the years with the... Oh, God, we talked about so many of them so far. Young know, Spirits of the Dead, the witches. Um... And they they also did these with a bunch of uh, sexy, like... Four Times That Night from Mario Bava. There's another yeah, one. yeah, Four Times That Night. Well, in a way. Well, he's the only one director there. What's the difference? But, yeah. But, no, it's it's um, it, it was a very popular thing. Edwige Fenech was in a lot of these things in the 70s. Sex with a Smile, yeah. Yeah, I like that. So, uh, it, it's... It was fun. It was laborious to watch. Because, <laughs> I didn't feel because, that way. I was yeah. enjoying every segment. So I'm like, oh, what's the next one? <laughs> okay, I see. You, 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 you enjoyed it more than I did. I was just like, oh, why did I agree to this one? After I enjoyed two women, <laughs> I felt this was a chore. Wow, that's so opposite. But okay, that's what makes the world go around. So uh, 1962, Five Miles to Midnight. We also covered this one on our Tony Perkins show. Loren is stunning in a Marlo Thomas Bob as the ridiculously hot and overly tolerant young wife of an especially seedy, bizarre, and abusive Tony Perkins. Here Loren sheds her boisterous country peasant persona for that of the mod jet setter, frugging in basement nightclubs and dressed very much the young sophisticate, despite being slapped, manipulated, and psychologically abused by Perkins, whose big plan is to provide some much-needed cash for the couple is to fake his own death in a plane crash so they can make out in life insurance money. Of course, he isn't actually dead, and she's forced to cover it up to her friends and the world at large while he hides out in her place, snickering like a naughty five-year-old who hit his sister's favorite dolly or some shit. It's weird. Eventually, she can't handle the stress of all this nonsense, forces him out of the car on a lonely windswept road on a pretense, then runs him down with the car back and forth a few times just to get it all out. It's somewhat akin to the earlier Melville or Max Pekus crime films, or even something like that Nico Serge Gainsbourg film Striptease, Roman Polanski's Knife in the Water, or on a certain level, a cul-de-sac, and we did shows on Polanski, and as part of our French cult film show, Pekus as well, not to mention Striptease, and very watchable throughout, despite being directed by, of all people, Anatole Litvakov. 
of our Humphrey Bogart shows Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, a decidedly strange choice for a small cast French noir crime picture of the era. But Perkins is always fascinated and multi-layered, like we discussed last time. And Lorraine is a total knockout here, so if you dig this sort of thing like I do, it comes very much recommended. Another good one. Oh, we just talked about this one, too. So, yeah, I think we both liked it. It was a, a good, interesting picture. Gig Young. <laughs> Gig <laughs> Young would, would stress out, and uh, toward the end of his life, he just couldn't control his drinking, but they still hired the guy. Didn't he actually kill himself, too, besides the drinking, or was it just the drinking that put him down? I, You know, I don't remember, but it's easy to find out. Yeah, I had that impression that he was also... Oh, my God. On October 19, 1978, three weeks after his marriage to 31-year-old German magazine editor Kim Schmidt... Both of them were found dead in their apartment at the Osborne Hotel in Manhattan. Police surmised that Young shot his wife and then himself. I knew it. I remembered he was a suicide as well as a, a drinker. Wow, I didn't know he killed his wife, too. But All right, so there you go. My old uh, film memory served. But... Well, and this is very dramatic here, though. Young had apparently shot himself in the mouth, and the bullet exited the back of his head. His wife was also shot in the back of the head. No suicide note was ever found. Hmm. Interesting. Sound, yeah, it sounds like somebody ever going to... It's it's like the, um, what was it, George Reeves thing? Where it's like, well, I think it was a suicide. They uh, seem to agree with that, but yeah, who knows? Anyway, who knows? Bob Crane, there's a lot of Hollywood mysteries that are <laughs> not necessarily solved. So, speaking of these kind of things, 1963, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. You think I'm a slave to sex, but I have a soul, too. Remember that. There's only a hair between a saint and a devil. One of Loren, Mastriani, and De Sica's most famed collaborations. This is yet another of those anthology films so big in Italy around that time, which we were just talking about. Spirits of the Dead from our Bardot and Peter Fonda shows. The Witches from our Clean Eastwood show. Four Times That Night from our Bava show and the earlier mentioned Boccaccio 70 being only a few. The difference here is, like the Bava film, there's only one director attached to the three stories. The first one is pretty bad. A ratty-looking, run-down, and especially impoverished Loren is effectively Midwestern white trash, selling bootleg cigarettes to support an unemployed husband. She gets busted and fined, can't pay it, they try to repossess her furniture, the neighbors help her hide it so they can't take it, and they throw her in jail, but there's a weird caveat where Italian law says that you can't incarcerate a pregnant woman, so she spends the rest of this overlong torture test of a segment popping out kids, literally a dozen times over. End. Oh my god, who the fuck thought that was funny? Things don't improve much for the second story, where she's a rich bitch driving around in hubby's rolls with peace on the side of Mastriani. Nothing happens, but she talks herself into an existential crisis over whether she prefers the money and car to her boy toy, who also has second thoughts about her when he sees how callous she is, and she winds up dumping him on the side of the road when she chooses her free ride over a good fuck. Um, yay, soulless gold-digging bitch? Wow. <laughs> Finally, we come to the reason this film is remembered, much less with any degree of fondness. Lorraine is a high-priced hooker. <laughs> Lorraine is a high-priced hooker who takes rich fucks like Mastriani in her apartment. Think a chintzier version of Rosie's place in Mario Bava's Black Sabbath. Another one of those anthologies, by the way. The whole story here is that Lorraine has a nosy old bitch of a neighbor who's all up in her business, and her grandson is a horny kid planning on becoming a priest who decides to forget the whole idea of celibacy over his smoking hot neighbor, understandably. The old bitch drops by to beg her help in not encouraging the kid to be normal. They bond, amusingly, only when the old shit finds out how much Lorraine is pulling in selling pussy, which she turns around and pats her on the back for. And Lorenz swears off sex for a week, which magically makes her waking neighbor change his mind and go back to lusting after little boys. Uh, I mean, becoming a priest. 
Mm-hmm. The same thing. The real kicker of the sequence is when Loren, quote, rewards Mastriani for playing along with all this by doing one of the most famous strip teases on film. And it's nice, if brief. She's got a Murray Widow corset, thigh highs and suspenders. She even snaps one of her stockings at Mastriani. But because of her silly, quote, vow, that's all he gets for a week. Roll credits. The story is slight, to say the least, but it's both warm and smile-inducing all the way through. There's lots of winning character bits and lines here, and it's clear that Lorraine is very comfortable with herself and her profession, and when it comes down to it, so is everyone else, even the formerly mean and nosy old neighbor. It actually saves the film, which otherwise was pretty fucking terrible. Uh, yeah, well, I liked watching this more than I liked Boccaccio, whatever it was called, the last one. And, well, this is shorter. It's only two hours. Hey, you know, one director, the same. Now, what's interesting is this the same cast, pretty yes. much, but in three different stories, playing three different characters. Characters, you know, and uh, I mean, <laughs> it was very popular everywhere, though. Probably because uh, of the script. International <laughs> and in the U.S. and Canada. This just made a lot of money, and hence, I think suddenly it was like, hey, you know, it was, it was released in late 63, early 64, so they can get a little bit more spicy. Yes. Um, now, whereas a lot of the things that would come in its wake were more comedic, for the most part, th- this this had that very interesting combination of comedy and melodrama, mm-hmm. which is an Italian thing, you know? Yes. You know, whereas things should be completely bleak, that was one of Vittorio De Sica's trademarks as a director anyway. Yeah. You know, when you would think things would be completely bleak and no hope and like, oh, my God. And then it's like, oh, let's just pump out children, you know. And... <laughs> I don't know. He humanizes the pathos. But, you know, nonetheless, it, it those two segments, the first the, the first one is very hard to watch. And the second one is like, really? The third one is, you know, lots of fun. Yeah, but the second one, the second one was a, a bit, you know, it's uh, Ponty. Don't forget, Ponty <laughs> was designing her career in such a way that she would just work, 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 work. It must have been really tough on her, but she worked so often and in such long movies that it was, like, very interesting. You know, like, so you keep making these pictures for your wife to star in, and you are the producer, and yet... <laughs> you keep making her a whore. <laughs> you keep making, yeah, you keep making a whore, you keep making her an evil bitch... Maybe they had a very unusual relationship. I it was know. open. Who knows? I actually thought when you mentioned Ponty and think about that second sequence, I'm like, wow, I wonder how metatextual it was. Like, ah, okay, you know, I don't mind screwing Cary Grant, but my money's coming from Carlos, so I think I'll choose him. It's like, wow. <laughs> really? Uh, I hope it's not like that, but it probably was. Who knows? Anyway, so she does. Did you see The Fall of the Roman Empire? Again, not for years. I've seen these things when I was young on TV, but. Yeah, I haven't seen it for years. Uh, just briefly, it's a Anthony Mann picture. A good director, actually, this is one of the better historical epics. It's it's a bit long. <laughs> God, they were making really long pictures back in the you know. Everybody's complaining now. Doom was three and a half hours. Bond was three hours. This is four hours. I get it because we haven't been used to that in a long time. We've been spoiled, but back in the '60s, big tentpole movies like these historical epics were like. They were so long, there was real changes. Do you remember that? It was like intermission, and they played music, and then the movie will come back on, the second part of it. Anyway, this one starred Stephen Boyd, who at one time was very popular everywhere, and I, I too, have not seen it in a long time, so my memory is kind of shaky on it. It's just a very 
powerful Roman soldier who it's very political too. So you, you, you know, it's funny, like there were a lot of historical epics around his time about Christ, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the Bible, some very popular ones. And uh, that this didn't go down that road. Yeah, it was more like Spartacus. Yeah, it was more like Sp- Spartacus with a much better picture. But uh, yeah, it was just, I don't know. Interesting cast in this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if I want to see that kind of stuff, I'm going to watch I, Claudius, because that's just amazing. Oh, yeah. Filled with some amazing actors. Sure, the whole Caligula sequence is beyond belief. That's actually what sells it. So anyway, 1964, she does Marriage Italian Style. So strangely popular and successful was their last collaboration that the Seeker brings Loren and Mastriani back together for a far less likable, but oddly even more popular and Oscar-nominated stinker of a de facto sequel. This time, Mastriani is a rich fuck who meets the teenage Loren working at a whorehouse he patronizes. Seriously, folks. And saves her when the building is bombed during World War II. She was hiding in a closet, and he has to drag her out before the place collapses into rubble. She's naturally both grateful and false for the guy, but he's too shallow and not interested in anything serious. But he will give her a job in his store, sets her up in a little villa complete with servants, and keeps her as an unofficial mistress, pretending for public sake that she's taking care of his geriatric mother. Yeah, sure. Meantime, he's hot for another girl working for him, who's less than half his age, and is about to marry that girl. So Loren pretends she's dying, extorts a deathbed marriage out of him, which he actually makes official mind, and suddenly she sits up perfectly healed, surprise sucker. Worse, she didn't even do it to land the guy for herself or even to scam her way into his fortune. It's because she got knocked up three times already, one of them by him, and she wants her kids not to be bastards. Oh, what a sexy rom-com scenario. I'm really rooting for these two to get together. What the fuck? He quickly gets this extortion of her marriage annulled, but she finagles him back into marrying her, not by her wiles, not because he's hot for her, not because she's a great catch, but because she magically tells him that one of the bastards is his, and he can't figure out which one. Magically, this gets him to marry her voluntarily. Again, say what? Honestly, I don't know what the hell is wrong with a turret, the Seiko, and or Italian culture that this bullshit, and the first two parts of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, for that matter, are so celebrated and beloved, while far better films with all or most of these three involved are more or less forgotten, like Picasso 70, Too Bad She's Bad. Those films are great. This one's a complete piece of shit, and Loren isn't even <laughs> up to her sex pot standards of the era here, spending way too much of the time made up to look sickly or dragging fucking kids around. I've tried this one several times over the years, simply due to its stars and reputation, and I hated it every single time. So what's your take? <laughs> um, I barely made it through this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, this was less than two hours. Uh, That's the recommendation. It's less than two hours. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful seeing, you know, Prime, Sophia Loren, and Marcello Mastrioni in, in films that in their day were very popular. God knows why. And we're talking the swinging mid-60s, you know? And here she was lugging kids around and blackmailing them with a mirror. Yeah, <laughs> and the funny thing is, this is, but that, all that stuff will change within within a year to two years. It really would. There would be shocking changes in Italian films. Thank God. Know, That's when they get good, folks. <laughs> That's when they got really good. But mm-hmm. this was an interesting film to see. Yeah. 
1965, Operation Crossbow, a very British war film. This one centers in the documented UK spy mission relating to Germany's development of the V-2 rockets and the British attempt to shut that down. It's one of those very typical Starfucker casts, including the likes of King Rats' Tom Courtney from our George Siegel show, the lovable Richard Johnson of everything from Eurospy's Deadlier Than Male and The Haunting to Demi Damiani's Excellent The Witch, Nightchild, Beyond the Door, Zombie, and The Monster Club, the last two of which we discussed in our Lucio Fulci and Amicus film shows, John Mills of our Robert Mitchum shows The Big Sleep, the Quatermass miniseries from the late 70s, and George Kennedy's The Human Factor, Trevor Howard of our Frank Sinatra show's Von Ryan's Express, Craze, which I believe we talked in our Amicus show, The Night Visitor, reviewed over at thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com a few years back, and Who from our Elliot Gould show, and of course George Papard, Banachek, and star of our 70s sci-fi with a message show's Demolition Alley. Sophia is only in this thing for a few minutes of screen time as the unsuspecting former wife of the deceased official whose identity is being assumed by Papard. She drops in on him looking for custody of their kids, but rather than blow his cover, they agree to a deal in exchange for her silence, and it veers close to being a romantic liaison, but as soon as he leaves, the woman he entrusts her to blows her away. I gather she was a Nazi spy or some shit. Regardless, she's absolutely stunning here for a shorter time as she's on screen. Directed by Michael Anderson of our George Siegel show's Quiller Memorandum, Doc Savage, Logan's Run, our Roddy McDowell show's Martian Chronicles, and Orca from our Charlotte Rampling and Richard Harris shows, it's very stiff and mannered, but likable enough as war films go. It's far more Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy than James Bond over Eagles Dare, but it's not bad at all, and Harris, Papard, and Lorenz certainly enliven things enough. Oh, yeah. I, I, I always liked George Papard, actually, and it was yeah, nice to see this. Because it reminded me of... Just avoid Newman's Law. What a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. It was. It reminded me how much I enjoyed watching him, even some of the westerns he did. This had, yeah, an all-star cast. But, yeah, you're right. It's not a Euro spy thing like Bond. This is more like pictures like Tobruk and... Uh, not even the Ipcris file. It's very much like John McCarr kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's very, very, very much like that. It's... and. Yes, Sophia's only in it for a short time. I forgot about that. I think I hadn't seen it in years till I recently saw it. Of course, she's all over the posters. <laughs> they had to sell it that way. Yeah, she's all over the posters, and she's probably top-billed. I think she is top-billed in the posters. But it's a nice, a decent, uh, not a nice, but a decent British-produced big go-get-the-Germans picture, you know, and uh, a good espionage film. Something that uh, almost, which would come like three years later, where Eagles Dare, you know, almost in that vein, but not quite as exciting, but very well made. Yeah. Good cast. So, 1966, Arabesque. Stanley Donan, who gave us Two for the Road from our Jackie Bissett show, delivers this stylish cross between the 60s spy thriller and the sort of nightmare take on saying that Hitchcock made his wheelhouse with films like North by Northwest, Notorious, and To Catch a Thief. There were a number of films of this type in the mid to late 60s, like Kaleidoscope, or Sean Connery shows Woman of Straw, and Donan's Own Charade, but this is more like a cross between straight-up Eurospy a la our George Siegel shows The Quiller Memorandum, and TV's taut and stylish Mission Impossible, which, alongside the modern-day Tom Cruise film series, we had covered in our Mission Impossible show. The perpetually wooden Gregory Peck of The Omen and our Tony Perkins shows On the Beach is a college professor more or less railroaded by various parties, foreign and domestic, into meeting with a sleazy rich Arabic businessman who wants him to decipher a code written in hieroglyphics. This guy is a classic Bondian villain, all leering and understated menace, and alternately worships and cruelly dominates his pampered trophy girl, Loren, looking gorgeous as always and flitting in and out of various slinky and exotic numbers in the course of a few brief scenes. She's practically sheriff, she changes his outfit so much. When she drags Peck aside to warn him of her man's intent to kill him after getting what he wants, a long sequence of cat and mouse and escape chase scenarios commence. 
The requisite twists and turns begin when all sides are shown to be compromised, and Lorraine and another of her men, Kieran Moore of Sean Connery, shows Darby O'Gill and the Little People, The Key, which we just discussed, and Dr. Blood, are also after the code, and she may or may not be one big Matahari playing all sides against the middle. It's hardly Hitchcock level or even much akin to the aforementioned Quiller Memorandum or the Harry Palmer films from a Michael Caine show, but it's classy with nice sets and locations and several leagues above the ostensibly similar popular crap like The List of Adrian Messenger, which he covered several times, inclusive of our Tony Curtis and Frank Sinatra shows. I actually forgot. You're right. I actually forgot how good this is. You know, I mentioned Craven before. Stanley Donan, another guy who dabbled in as, as a film director who dabbled in so many genres and he was pretty decent he wasn't like uh, you know a lot there were, you know especially in the 1960s and 1970s were a lot of directors that worked all the time and you could say their stuff is like workmanlike or fine job you know fine job but he was a guy who made pictures that were always different so you, you know i guess probably by him and kramer who we, we mentioned earlier for another sophia Loren film uh, we're, we're in such demand. You know what this movie reminded me a, a lot of was Charade. Yes. Which should have been better, but wasn't. For some yes. reason, that one doesn't work uh, for me. It never did. Although Grant is fine and James Corbin is almost steals a picture. Probably because of uh, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Yeah. She looks, Sophia Loren looks gorgeous and, it's, mm-hmm. and it almost, almost makes you stand, you know, sit through the picture and like, well, this is a bit of a mouthful the the, the plot line you know <laughs> it, it, yeah it's just like it's very 60s and kind of euro spot so i enjoyed it but you know yeah, it is yeah, convoluted yeah. and yeah <laughs> and there's a lot of and there's there's some people you might recognize from appearing in other british films of the time period but at the same time there's a lot of the supporting cast is like not seen them too often so it's quite possible a lot of these people were like uh British stage actors, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of times they shot these things and they shot these films and uh, the days off. A lot of these uh, men and women who were doing the boards during the day, they were like, "Oh, I'll come over and pop over there and do this role." You know? <laughs> a lot of people were doing that, but that's why I, I like I like the films. Like it feels a little refreshing. Like you don't recognize everybody that's in the movie and actually peck rarely did stuff like this oh yeah almost never almost never so then that's why it seemed to come across a little bit more fun yeah honestly this one and uh probably moby dick are like the only films i could sit through and like all yeah, right you know he's okay he's not the worst ever you know sometimes he's like yeah. well, he's often very very stiff and kind of oh my god so anyway, 1967, a countess from Hong Kong, baggy pants, silent film star, and prime suspect in the William Ince murder, Charlie Chaplin, directs this big-budget throwback stinker, very much akin to the earlier discussed A Breath of Scandal, though this one leans a bit more half-assed rock cuts and Doris Day film than Blowsy 50s musical. Ridiculously overpraised method actor and world's greatest Asian impersonator Marlon Brando, <laughs> to John Wayne and Mickey Rooney loom threateningly close to stealing that coveted title. His only film worth sitting through was his one-note existential depressive Last Tango in Paris, is the unlikely lead in this ostensible rom-com where he's supposed to be a U.S. ambassador because, you know, all ambassadors mumble incomprehensibly to folks where English is at best a second language, right? And Lorraine is supposedly an exiled Russian princess, exiled after the communists took power, and working as a fucking ten cent a dance hooker and former triad gangster mall in Hong Kong ever since. 
Yeah, sure. She sneaks aboard his liner and hides out in his cabin, and the world's grumpiest, low-energy, quote, romance ensues, and he doesn't catch any painful venereal diseases from her either, at least during the film's running time. Lorraine is lively and cute, but saddled with the bowling mush mouth, and yes, this is in the script, loudly belching in her face, Brando, as a leading man in love interest. It's a hopeless cause from the outset. Hitchcock's least favorite Bond, Dippy Hedron, and the only Miss Marple worth watching, Margaret Rutherford, occasionally pop up at exceedingly brief random intervals, though it seems the bulk of the damn film takes place in Brando's overly spacious cabin. Nowhere near as awful as Breath of Scandal, but it's a total waste of time, unless you really want to see Brando belch in Sophia Loren's face as part of the film. What's your take? Oh, you really had to recommend this to the fetish crowd now, right? Oh, my God. Anyway. <laughs> my mouth dropped. I'm like, really? <laughs> it's a strange movie because, yeah, it's one of Charlie Chaplin's last films. I don't know why he would do this. but <laughs> I don't know why he did this. <laughs> and it was done in England. Well, you know, he's English, I believe. But, uh, yes. you know, he, well, probably because he's always more appreciated overseas, you know. Just like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Brando very rarely, here's another guy, Brando very rarely get these kind of light and fluffy roles. Romantic comedies? Okay. You know, the, the kind that Rock Hudson and uh, Tony Curtis and others were doing at this time period. And and <laughs> Brando? Wow. <laughs> I think he was the night of the following day is maybe the same year or yes. a year or two later, and that's a pretty shocking picture. Yeah, it's a home invasion so, film. I saw that. Yeah, so uh, whatever's going on with him, you know, he probably said, Sophia Loren? <laughs> but he must huh? not like her, though, because he belts in her face. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't. Who the hell does this? And I've had to be improv. I can't imagine that somebody like Charlie Chapman would write that into the script. Well, they left it in. <laughs> they did leave it in. I was like, okay. <laughs> they left it in, even if it was accidental. But, you know, I'm sure she, you know, maybe she slapped him. Who knows? Who um, knows? Everybody thinks Brandle's a genius. Strange movie. Where are we next? All right. So she does a couple more films. I wanted to see Ghost Italian Style. You said you saw that. Yes, I did. Man of La Mancha, Brief Encounter, and something I really would have liked to have seen, Sex Pot, but Poopa Doe Gangster. But, you know, I didn't get to see any of those, so I don't know if I'm going to cover any of that stuff. Well, Ghost, Ghost Italian Style, it sounds better than it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a... Yeah, it, w it would have played better as one of those anthology films. That's kind of what I thought it was, okay. No, it's not really. It just... It's been a long... It, it, even though she stars in it. It doesn't have the uh, Victorio Gassman and Mario Adorf and Margaret Lee from a couple of pictures in the uh, genre films, a couple of roles in genre films. I think she did something for Franco. Yeah, yeah, Franco too. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're pretty much the stars. And then there's a lot of unrecognizable people in this. <laughs> Marcello Mestrioni shows up as one important character. But, you know, it's a, it's an Italian comedy about poor a poor family, a poor couple, actually, who who live rent-free in an apartment building, okay? Well, the people that inhabit the building are gross. <laughs> That's why it's cheap. <laughs> and, well, it's, it's a particular ghost, but then it's hinted at that there's more. Mm -hmm. The thing is, they, they try to have a coexistence with the ghostly spirit. <laughs> she looks stunning often. And the thing was, it's very, it's a comedy, 
but it's also very um, an edgy comedy, you know, because they're poor people, you know, and uh, I don't know. I just really, really did not enjoy it too much. Lady Liberty, did you say you saw that? No, I didn't. Lady Liberty was one of these uh, wildly popular pictures in America. I remember early 70s, and <laughs> William Devane, that's how long he's been hanging around, <laughs> is in this picture. It's directed by an, uh, an Italian, Mario Monticelli. It's written by... A, hey, uh, from Boccaccio 70, this is the guy they access the segment. Right, and it's written by a bunch of people, including Ring Lardner Jr., which is a familiar name. Strange supporting cast, too. we got uh, Danny DeVito, Susan Sarandon, young Susan Sarandon. So here's the thing. Sophia plays this earthy Italian woman who real stretch arrives in, in New York from Italy to get married and she has like a, some kind of long distance relationship right and she's carrying around this big Italian sausage <laughs> very phallic right <laughs> yes her, her co-workers at the sausage factory where she used to work like gave this you know give this to your fiance you know so she comes into the country and then they hold her because she's bring she wants to bring in this Italian sausage, right? You with me? Yeah. They won't let her in the country. She they said there's you can't bring food. Yeah, that's true. So they should give you shit for that. She she stays in the customs office at the airport, sparking a big thing, you know, news <laughs> stuff, and all because she want to bring her some cup of cola. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, the movie does move on, but it's it was everywhere. I, I remember in the early 70s, this picture, it was so popular that when, when like a new movie came out in double bills, that was the that was the second that was the co-feature. I'm like this picture again. <laughs> um, so I saw it again. Unfortunately, I saw it on YouTube and the free YouTube had it. And I remember it had some racy scenes, but I'm not sure. They definitely weren't in the YouTube version I saw. Man of La Mancha, Arthur Heller, who also directed Airport. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I Um, covered all the Airport films over at Third Eye Cinema. Uh, Oh, okay. Loads of fun. (laughs) That was before I came along, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, maybe it was while we were doing the show, but yeah. (laughs) You've been doing it for like 40 years. Uh, <laughs> not that long, but yeah. The Man, Man of La Mancha, 1972 film. It, so Man of La Mancha is this Broadway musical that... With Jim Neighbors. <laughs> was my, he in it at some point? My grandmother had a record doing it. Jim Neighbors doing Man of La Mancha. Yes, it was hard to believe. <laughs> well, you know, this this thing is was perennial. It was always around. It would do great business, and then after a while, it would make not so much coin, which is the... The uh, you know the, 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 the term for Broadway <laughs> when they're not making money after a while. Like, all right, overheld third year. Then after a while, it's like we better close it, you know, because nobody's coming. And then they'd bring it back again, you know. Some of the music was always some of the song. There's two versions of this. It was a musical and there was a straight version. And it was often the musical that appeared. So Peter O'Toole, everyone's favorite. Crazy bastard <laughs> is Don, Don Quixote and James Coco, who at this point in time was just getting started uh, in, in in feature films. He was forever doing small background roles, you know. Yeah, he was kind of like Dom DeLuise. I'm not sure which one was more annoying, but it was but, basically the same personality. 
<laughs> no, well, James was more. He, he he certainly did well as a dramatic actor. He plays Sancho Panza, Harry Andrews, who everyone remembers was uh, the innkeeper. I mean, just Ian Richardson. Blah 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 blah. Gino Conforti, remember him? Yeah, I do remember that name. <laughs> yeah, he used to he used to show up in some of the uh, the Rat Pack movies. Yes, and yes. He would show up uh, <laughs> once in a while on on the Dean Martin's uh, specials, and he, yeah, he was he was a character. Anyway, so this is a musical version. Uh, since Peter probably could sing, but not sing that well, <laughs> he had somebody named Simon Gilbert singing for him. Brian Blessed from. Oh my God, Brian Blessed, Flash Gordon, I Claudius, a whole bunch of right. things. He's singing <laughs> for Harry Andrews, but Brian Blessed is also in the film as well and has a singing part. So nobody could tell that both these guys sound alike because he's actually singing for the other guy. Right. And, you know, like he dubbed in, you know. So what is this about? It's a very weird film about a dreamer. And a guy who goes on a quest, he has he has this, like, he's going to find a specific thing. He's, he's the next knight, and this guy is his, his manservant. Yeah, it's this weird thing about naivete and idealism and, you know, staying, th- staying true to your dreams. <laughs> well, what did they do with this picture? Surprisingly, surprisingly, if you if you ever get around to seeing this, it's pretty freaking weird. Richard Kiley had done a version of this somewhere along the way, too. So O'Toole, as... Don Quixote, also known as Miguel de Cervantes. They've been imprisoned by the Spanish Inquisition, and he finds a, a manuscript, and they have these mock trials, and he starts to lose his mind. Now he, he believes he should go forth as a knight, renames himself, and sets forth on the on adventures with Sancho Panza, James Coco. Sophia Loren plays dual roles. It's almost like he's lost his mind, and it's not quite... Very strange. She sings well. She sings. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, Italian. She sings. Um, she actually sung something in one of these other movies too. I forget which one we covered. In one of the '60s ones. Could be, yeah. It was nothing really. It was like a slight. Thing. Maybe it was too bad. She's bad. Could she, be. She had a little song she was doing a ditty. Well, yo, originally. Oh, in Houseboat. Yeah, Houseboat. Originally that. Uh, People mock uh, sometimes Brigitte Bardot's singing career, but she was so good compared to Sophia Loren. <laughs> well, I mean, one, one of the things, one of the things that everybody had problems with, with the actually the character schizophrenic, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Don Quixote, and and so everything you experiences through the different versions of his character. A lot of people didn't know what to make of this, you know, and it's a very strange film. But she looks great in it, and she's actually well-dressed in frumpy stuff, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, 1976, she does the Cassandra Crossing. Mm. We discovered this one in our Richard Harris show. A dumpy, balding, sweaty, weatherman-style quote-unquote terrorist is the lone survivor of a trio who stole a highly illegal and Geneva Convention-defying sample of the Black Plague from the Swiss headquarters of the World Health Organization, of all places and organizations to be working on biological warfare. Tubby winds up on a Trans-Europe Express-style train ride to Sweden, which sets off the usual 70s Starfucker disaster film scenario, because not only do all the typical assortment of washed-up celebs and oddball character actors have to deal with the spread of plague from this clown, but government clowns like Burt Lancaster and Salon Kitty's Ingrid Thulin, who decide to reroute the train to an abandoned World War II concentration camp, and if that plot twist doesn't drop your jaw, realize they're deliberately setting the train over a disused and structurally unsound railway bridge, which they fully expect to collapse under the strain and their 
thereby remove any evidence of their malfeasance. Loren is in this one because, surprise, it's co-produced by her power player hubby, Carla Ponte. Mm. Even though she's a decade or so past her prime here, she gets to trot out her usual sex bot shtick in A Merry Widow, but Ponty manages to keep it pretty damn demure by comparison to her earlier, far more revealing work, like, for example, uh, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. She's also supposedly both an ex of a ratty, mad professor-looking Richard Harris and a Holocaust survivor, so I expect to swallow any degree of logic or credibility before sitting down to this one. It's amusing enough with all the weird character bits and relationships. Max from heart to heart. Hey, Max and the homoerotic baddie from our Roman Polanski show's cul-de-sac, is the conductor, amusingly enough named, wait for it, Max. Uh, Martin Sheen is not only a kept boy to beefy old Eva Gardner, but a drug mule slash smuggler being tailed by priest come G-Man, now wait for this, OJ, if I did it, Simpson, and a few Euro faces like Carl DeMejo, John Philip Law, Ray Lovelock, and Alita Valley appear in smaller roles. But the aesthetics are all wrong. It's a very drab-looking and subdued by disaster film standards of the era. Mm. And it's not really a train film either, despite its plot. It's not a must-avoid, but it's definitely kind of third-tier by disaster film and or huge cast starfucker films of its day. I know you liked it a lot more than I did. We talked about it in our Richard Harris show, for one. So what's your take? I like it a lot. I like it a lot. It's always been a favorite of mine. I actually saw it in a theater. It's over two hours. No, I know. I was pitching before about long (laughs) No, it's like just barely. But it's it's one of those, you know, it was really, okay, so it's like 77, spring of 77. It's those Agatha Christie, really long Agatha Christie films were very popular about this time period, I believe. The ones with Ustinov and, 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 and the, there were there were several, some were rock, big star fucker casts. And they were long, which I think I already said. But this is one of the few European pictures, but this is Sulu. Yes, it was. It was an ITC Entertainment Production, yes. one of those Sir Lou Grade things. Around this time, for about a three-year period, he was having crazy fucking are you on LSD cast. <laughs> and because he was the head of the uh, Associated Television uh, British Broadcast Network. Yeah, we talked about a lot of his shows in the uh, in British TV show. Yeah, and, and the Italian, and he, he hooked, hooked up, up a Ponte, and they had this production company, and they were just doing crazy stuff. Raz Target, I remember, was one. There was even one that got Terrence Hill. Remember that he, he, it was a Foreign Legion picture, you know, and Terrence really did, rarely did any English language pictures. So anyway, this one has an amazing cast of crazy people. George Penn comes models who would later on do the amazing First Blood Rainbow Part Two, which is an amazing fucking movie. Who knew, right? Anyway, yeah, it doesn't, it's, it's a disaster film, and yet it's hard. You have such a big cast of people. But then it's a bit of a, a Debbie Downer because you're seeing all the machine machine, uh, machine machinations, however you say it, <laughs> but behind, you know, behind the scenes that people who are going to kill all these people because they don't want it to be known that, you know, they fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Harris is enjoyable. And, and, and uh, Lauren and him have this kind of, yeah, no, yeah, no kind of thing. Well, it's supposed to be X's, but... Yeah, well, yeah, right. Well, that's why I say, yeah, no, yeah, no kind of thing, because it's like they're X's, but, like, they fall. Of course, they're going to fall in love again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... Then it's germ warfare is interesting. And it's like, you know, so the guy who's writing this script, he's typing out, hey, I'll add in the Holocaust. Hey, maybe one of the people will be a heroin junkie. You know, and it's like... 
<laughs> crazy shit. You know, the same year, Martin Sheen goes off to the Philippines to do Apocalypse Now for three years. Mm-hmm. Right after he leaves this. This is like crazy shit. I like it a lot because as the, if, for folks who've never seen the Cassandra Crossing, you know, you're watching and think, ah, oh, they're not going to do it. And then the, the movie gets closer toward the end, toward the climax. And you're like, oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> you're it, actually going to do it. You know, it's and it's got a great, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people. Carlo DeMeo uh, is in this as well. And uh, Lucas Stell, Ray Lovelock, yeah, a lot of these people. And Turkel for a period. She was Richard Harris's wife, I think. And she was in a lot of his films, including Arca. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. You mentioned about Terrence Hill didn't do too many international productions, which is true. But actually, my two favorite ones he did, well, of course, they're most comedies, as usual, was The Super Cop and um, the follow-up Crime Busters, which actually had uh, Bud Spencer in it as well. <laughs> they used to show them on HBO all the time. And the latter has Laura Gemser in it as well in a brief part. Uh, mm. I think under the Maura Chen pseudonym, but yeah, I, those are my favorite uh, Terrence Hill films. So when he did do an international production, they were good. Well, not not the one with Jackie Gleason, remember that? <laughs> no. <laughs> that was terrible, and it wasn't Jackie's fault either. Wow. Wasn't he in one of those things, not Five Car Stud, but one of those, it was a, a Western like that that was like supposed to be a comedy, and it wasn't an Italian necessarily, it was like a co-production? Oh, yeah, yeah, there was something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was really bad. Anyway. Actually, you know, we, we were just talking about these Sulu Great things, and she cameos, she has a cameo, in Brass Target. Yes. Yeah. Did you see that? No, I did not. Go ahead. It, this is a weird one. I, I had to catch it on YouTube again because uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really, somebody probably will put it out on Blu-ray or something. Maybe somebody will put out a bunch of these sort of great things. And this is directed by uh, John Howe from uh, Hammer Vet and a British horror film vet. The movie's about what what happens if we reimagine General Patton's fatal car crash that ended his life? Well, was it due to a conspiracy? Oh, not one of those things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... And it's about a robbery. So it becomes a sort of strange kind of thing. You know, Sophie Loren has a, a role, a th- kind of a thankless role uh, of, of uh, one of the girlfriends of Patton, played by George Kennedy. John Cassavetes is in this. Robert Vaughn is in this. Patrick McGowan. Wow. Uh, Edward Herman. I mean, like what? Max von Sydow. Wow. <laughs> Ed Bishop of UFO fame. I mean, it was just like they, they really threw the casting net way out there. Apparently, this is based on a rumored true incident. And when I say heist, it was something like Patton knew of or was investigating something that that the OSS had stole billions of dollars of, of gold, Nazi gold, and transporting it. And that was why he was murdered. And this is sort of like they try to make a like a. JFK. A JFK kind of thing in this. And she gets lost in the cast. Although prominently billed, she doesn't have as, as big a part. So 1979, she does one that we both like, Firepower. 
Yes. Gorgeous locations in the expected 70s Star Fucker cast enliven this better than average Lou Grade production. Speaking of Grade, Grade, who we discussed for many a film on many a show, actually picked up our Bronson Show regular Michael Wiener to direct what was intended as another Dirty Harry film, which we discussed those in our Clint Eastwood show, and to co star Wiener's go to man, Charles Bronson. When Bronson wouldn't sign on, Grade, who'd already sunk millions into the cast and crew for this, recast James Coburn in the role. Wiener also pulled in likable lunk Victor Mature, known for a handful of film noir and a shitload of American Bible epics slash pebbles in the 40s and 50s, mm. for a key scene late in the film, and it was his last role. Just look at this bizarre cast. Loran, Coburn of our Bronson Show's Magnificent Seven and Hard Times, The Internecine Project, our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins Show's Last of Sheila, and our Michael Creighton Show's Looker, O.J. Simpson of our Elliot Gould Show's Capricorn One and The Cassandra Crossing, Tony Franciosa of our Kinski Show's Web of the Spider, our Black Exploitation Show's Across 110th Street, our Bronson Show's Death Wish 2, and our Argento Show's Tenebra, Billy Barty of our Elvis movie show's Harem Scarum, Vincent Gardenia of our Elliot Gould show's Little Murders, and our Bronson show's Death Wish 1 and 2, Jake LaMotta of Confessions of a Psycho Cat, Maniac Cop, and our Wesley Snipes show's New Jack City, and Eli Wallach, quite possibly the worst of the Mr. Freezes on Batman, the annoying Tuco from our Clint Eastwood show's Good, Bad, and the Ugly, our Jackie Bissett show's The Deep, and our Satan in the 70s show's The Sentinel, Basically, Sophia's hubby was a chemist working for a sleazy Elon Musk type who letter bombs the guy to cover up for some corporate malfeasance. The company released a drug that caused cancer in users. Loren is looking for revenge, and the government wants the Musk analog for tax dodging and to nail him for endangering the public, hence G-Man Wallach. He hires former wise guy and hitman Coburn and his partner Simpson, yeah, because Italian mobs love working with non-paisan, right? To smoke out the reclusive corporate fuck, who turns out to be Franciosa, using Loren as bait. Mature is only there for a final, quote, happy ending as Lorenz next gold digger prospect. Yeah, seriously, but he's still doing this. I don't know what happened along the way, but even if they cast Eastwood in the role, this is a million miles from a Dirty Harry film, or as Winter seemed to intend, a Bronson film. But it's still far from the usual Lou Grade fare. It's sort of a cross between a Michael Caine thriller, and of course we did an entire show on him, and the sort of slow-moving, pensive British thrillers that were so huge in the 70s, like the aforementioned Internecine Project or Richard Harris show's Juggernaut. Lorraine is, as noted for the Cassandra Crossing, well past her prime here, but she's still stunning for a middle-aged lass. But she doesn't have that much to do besides serve as a somewhat well-appointed window dressing. It's really all Coburn shows, with a bit of Simpson thrown in as an afterthought. I certainly like this film, but it's very much an acquired taste unless you appreciate these sort of sleepy British semi-espionage films. It's got a bit more action than that might imply, but don't go in expecting a Bond film or even an Eastwood or a Bronson one in that respect. It's certainly one of James Coburn's later pictures, 1979, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly one of his better later, later period films. And so I was always wondering before I saw this, the first time that I saw it, was I wonder how he was going to handle it? You know, he 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 would live for decades later. You know, it's just that uh, he he really did too many movies in uh, the later seventies, and the ones he did were well chosen, like Looker or something. Uh, mm-hmm. No, or the other one, and the Internison Project. Right. And so he actually does quite well in here. It's another crazy fucking story. Actually, Michael Winner rewrote the original uh, script to I don't know since. They couldn't have Bronson. I'm sure Bronson, knowing Carlo Ponte, it's like Sophia Loren's going to co-star in this film, right? And she has a very prominent role in this movie. A lot of it centers around something. I don't want to give it away. And so 
So when you know they wanted to have Bronson and Loren, that's like that would have been a great idea. But Bronson always has Jill Ireland, so I'm sure Bronson wanted Jill Ireland to to be in the Sophia Loren. And you know, I'm sure Carlo Ponti said, "No, fuck it." You know, <laughs> and that's probably why I think Bronson's not in this picture because he 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 worked with Winner almost primarily during his time time period. So Sophia Loren, yes, looks stunning, stunning. For an older woman, she looks stunning. And I guess Carla was fine. We, we mentioned this before, but uh, she walks throughout the film. Every scene she's in, in diaphanous blouses, <laughs> braless. And, and it's like you, you're constantly, <laughs> yeah, I know. And you're constant, and she's nipping out most of the time. <laughs> you notice it's true. Because of course. It, it, because you've seen it, and it's yes. like, Okay, yeah, so we have to go talk to Carlo Ponte. Uh, (laughs) What's going on there? But the only thing I didn't like about it was, you know, because they were throwing around money like crazy on these little great things. Like, they go, Gato Barbieri, they're doing your music, but it's a a little too jaunty and Mm. out of place in scenes. But other than that, Firepower, a late Sophia Loren film, this is when she started to work less and less, too, right after this. But a hell of a fun one. So, yeah, like you said, she really stopped working after this because she did something, uh, Sophia Loren, her old story or whatever, which was probably a TV movie. She apparently cameoed in 2019 after the fall of New York. Wasn't that Castellari? It was one of those Italian uh, apocalyptic films. But, you know, neither one of us really remembered her in it, so it must have been really quick. Yeah, yeah. And then she started doing a bunch of TV films, you know, Aurora Courage, The Fortunate Pilgrim. Who ever heard of this crap? And doesn't do anything again until 1994, where she shows up in that Pret-a-Porter, which is kind of a thing for a couple of weeks. And that's really it. She's apparently the uh, Italian version of Cars 2. She's the voice of one of the cars. And that's really it. So, um, well, I, I wanted to just, just quickly... Oh, and Grumpy Old Man. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sophia Loren, her own story was 1980. It was a TV film for NBC. And I... I don't remember seeing it. I'm almost curious to see it because she plays her own mother, which is weird, and she plays herself at a certain age. And this uh, another actress plays her from four to seven and another one at 16. Okay, I forgot this. Armand Asante plays her father. Mm-hmm. Remember him? Yes, I do. John Gavin plays Cary Grant. Carlo Ponte, and I, uh, I forgot when Carlo passed, is played by Rip Torn of all people. And to Edmund Purdom, Vittorio De Sica. This starts to sound like it might be worth watching. <laughs> just based on his cast. I mean, is this thing even around somewhere? No, I mean, no. Take some digging. But I'm, I'm sure she sanctioned it. Yeah. Because she's in it. <laughs> but it's it's pretty strange. Quickly, quickly. Grumpier old men. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, years and years and years later, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon From The Odd Couple. From the odd couple. And Buddy Buddy. Yeah, I wish you put Buddy Buddy out. <laughs> yeah, and a bunch of other <laughs> From our Kloskinski show. I reunited for a thing called Grumpy Old Men, playing you know, a bunch of older guys and, and uh, amazingly had huge success. I mean, huge fucking success with these things. Yes. I don't know why. They were everywhere again. And you know what? I, I saw these things. I didn't mind them. They were time killers. And Margaret was the... Uh, the hot chick in one of them, so they go to do a sequel. Grumpier Old Men. Why? Because Grumpy Old Men grossed, at the time, $70 million to box office on a $25 million budget. So 
Why not do a sequel, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, this is 1996. That's just crazy. I was like, oh, my God. Folks, we're getting to the the next millennia, you know? Yep. So Sophia Loren was in this as looking stunning as the love interest for both these guys. Yeah, she was a lot younger than both of them. Let's put it that way. (laughs) She was a lot younger than both of them, but it was nice to have Sophia Loren and and Anne Margaret get the thing done. Walter started aging quickly. Yes. And, and Jack Jack was still looking pretty good. But then, then it was like, well, it was kind of a geriatric comedy. But, you know, it was harmless in a way. It was better than The Sunshine Boys, which we talked about in a Richard Benjamin show. <laughs> she was in Nine, the musical, which I actually enjoyed a lot. I had forgot I had seen this thing. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, it's a very Fellini-esque thing. Really? I mean, the cast was amazing. You had Sophia Loren playing... He played a guy, Guido Cantini. The whole thing is based. The whole thing is based on Fellini. Wow. On Fellini's life. It's a remake of, whatever. Marion Cotillard. Who oh, I, I remember her. Yes. Penelope Cruz, Nicole Kidman, Judy Dench, Kate Hudson, Sophia Loren. I mean, the cast is just like wow. And it, and and it's a, a lot of its music because you know Nine was very popular on the stage. And uh, I actually like it better than Chicago. It's it's pretty out there. And so uh, I recommend... Uh, oh, maybe that's why it. it's nine if you're Spaffolini, because eight and a half. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And and I don't want to give away, if anybody's not seen this, this whole show is about Sophia Loren. When you see her, you're going to be like, wow, she's so good. And uh, even Judy Dench is hot in this. <laughs> not something you say often. I like Judy Dench. But... Yeah, I like Judy Dench. She was great in the... God bless oh, Judy was that, mm, that was great. That was the, 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 yeah, she died in that one. Yeah. She was great in that. There's been, and then after that, besides doing uh, the a voice in the Italian version of Cars 2, it wasn't the American one, it was a voice of, her last film role looks like nine, and that was 2009. She did the voice for the Italian language version of Cars 2. She did one of the voices. And there were three documentaries, can you believe this, <laughs> about her life. Yep. Actually, no, two about her life and one about her mother, okay, in the past three years. Wow. But other than that, things have been pretty quiet. She is now up there. And she is currently 88. Wow. Yeah. But I've seen her recently at some events, and she still looks very good for her age. So, uh, anything else you want to say about her? Oh, this was one you really wanted to do. I was a little hesitant. I had a lot of fun doing it. I hope people enjoyed listening. Yeah. So, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Sophia Loren. Next week, Bruce Lee, one of my teenage heroes. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1 until Elon totally flips out and kicks everybody off. And, of course, we're on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. You can look us up for this and we're on Spotify, and we're on Amazon Podcasts, among other places. Just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. But in terms of iTunes, if you're particular, it's ID 55340244. That's basically it. Next time we'll be talking about, you know, be is water, and I still follow a lot of Bruce's philosophy. <laughs> Anything you want to say about Sophia to close out? Or? No, no, a beautiful woman, a very talented actress, award-winning actress. She... 
entertaining the hearts and minds and the Beatles of young boys everywhere for decades. <laughs> yes. Uh, as a uh, an original international European uh, pinup. Yeah, the thing about her, and one of the reasons, okay, yes, it was because of the Tony Perkins show, where I kept running across her films with him and started going down that rabbit hole, but one of the reasons I wanted to cover is because, okay, yes, like I mentioned, there's a big, big difference between her and Bridget Bardot, but unlike a lot of sex spots of that era, not just domestically, but even Italian ones, like uh, Gina Lola Brigida, or, you know, there, there's a bunch of people out there you could name, you know, somebody like Anita Ekberg, who obviously wasn't Italian, but they loved her there. There's a big difference, because she was very earthy, and at least in terms of her persona and the way she comes across, very existentially authentic. She wasn't afraid to be who she was on screen. It wasn't really putting on an act other than just the fact that it was cast or these stupid things where she was supposed to be a bad girl or a whore or pushing kids around. But, you know, in terms of her persona and the way she came across, it's very authentic. You're not talking about like a Marilyn Monroe where it's like totally fake or somebody where they're really clearly acting their way through things. She was um, bold, brassy, and fiery. You know, she was very much a Mediterranean type. And, you know, I do think that despite her films being you know, back and forth, some really good, some really terrible. She was definitely worth discussing her, so I'm glad we did it. And, um, like I said, next time we'll be talking uh, one of my teenage heroes, Mr. Bruce Lee. Good. All right. Have a great night. We will see you next time. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Bye. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. 
This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the Katie, the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. How are you this fine day? Doing all right. It's good to hear.
So yeah, my wife wasn't feeling too well last night, so she went to sleep a little early, so I ended up getting a whole bunch of the, because it's usually easier and shorter, obviously, I did the bonus content on, it wound up being four of the shows. So season 11 is now complete on that end, (laughs) such as it is. So, you know, things are slowly moving. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't feeling great a little early. I'm a little better. It's uh, I never learned my lesson. Now, <laughs> I, I've told you before, I can't really do spicy food anymore. Right, right. It's been a week since I had Indian, and I, I said medium, but... Uh, Still too hot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got this morning feeling uh, terrible. He's like my father always said, like, your ass talks to you with hot food. <laughs> uh, but... I figured, let's get done with this one. <laughs> yeah, and that way we can start fresh whenever. That next one should be easy anyway, because how many films did he do? Four? Five? <laughs> Who's the next one? I forgot already. Uh, you want to do Bruce next. Yes, okay. Great. That should be uh, comparatively rather easy. <laughs> Easy-esque. Uh, do you want to check this and let me know what I need to do on my end? Hopefully there's no weird buzzing. You sound fine in this so far, but yeah, I'll check it out. Okay. Okay. Hello again. Hello again. I don't know why that always happens. I don't understand it. It's like Skype, the software of champions. It's like, it's up. I did a test call. It's fine. We did the call. That was fine. And then all of a sudden, surprise. <laughs> like, what? Another update? For what? And it doesn't do anything. I've never seen any changes on Skype itself. It's just they want to interrupt us all the time. Anyway. Yeah, I haven't seen an update for this in a long time. Oh, lucky you. Who knows? I have no idea what they're up to. <laughs> All I know is it's fucking annoying, and it just kind of happens at random, because, you know, I understand when you're booting the computer up, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to do an update before you continue, like, uh, Pokemon pulls that shit all the time, all kinds of software does that, but not, okay, it's up, it's running, everything's cool, nah, fuck you, I've put an update in, stopping everything, okay, thanks, and for what? <laughs> so anyway, here we are again, so, uh, how's everything else on your end besides not feeling too well last night? Uh, when did we do one? This week? Yeah, we did it on, like, Tuesday. So I already talked to you about trying to help out this friend. Yes. Uh, I haven't put myself out there again because it's very draining emotionally, especially, yeah, sure. when, especially when somebody's asking for help and then doesn't want to help themselves. There's nothing you could do. Exactly. You can only do so much. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's... You know, I feel bad, but, you know, what can I do? Right. You can't kill yourself. No. You do your part, and then after that, it's up to the individual, I guess. And I'm not equipped because I'm not trained in this. I'm just a friend. Of course not, yeah. Nobody said you had to be. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, yeah, okay. So since then, other people have been, mutual friends have been texting me and messaging me, have I talked to her? She wants to talk to me. I'm like, and I kind of said, you know, I'm back at work now. The holidays are over. And not like I was not working but we're a little busy now i i don't can't be doing this no <laughs> i get you anyway let's jump into sophia loren all right please record a message afterwards your message will be played back to you skype the software of champions <laughs> <laughs> 